Hello, saucerers. Uh, that's you, because uh, you're listening to Montreal Sauce. Hi, uh, I'm Paul, and uh, this is part two of our interview with Marty Chan. Uh, so here we go with Chris. Okay. Last time on Montreal Sauce. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, I, I'm so rich I have a cottage. <laughs> it's, it's a lean-to out in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I assume uh i assume the process has grown too it must be um different than writing a play uh obviously like when you're writing plays it's meant to be acted on a stage so you almost need to grab some people and have them do the dialogue to see if it works where a book oh, yeah, is but, kind but, of you alone right uh it, it- well, when you're writing the play, eventually it becomes a collaborative process where the actors will come in and do a workshop of the play and you can actually hear your lines of dialogue being performed and you can cringe as you realize that you've totally overwritten a scene and you just I, – I, I'm notorious when I work in theater uh, that if I hear something that I don't like, I, I would just – cross it right out and i know that actors tend to get self-conscious because they go no 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 wait i I can deliver that line better i'm like no 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 no, (laughs) i I don't like that line i'm cutting it uh uh so so eventually it becomes a collaborative process uh but when you're writing the first draft in both cases you're still alone and and working with the ideas and working with the characters I i think the difference though between writing theater and and writing fiction is uh with theater the story is carried through the character and the dialogue uh, whereas with fiction, it's carried through the, the narrative. And I remember when I had made the transition from writing theater to, to writing fiction, I was still in theater mode. So, so oftentimes my first drafts would be chock full of dialogue with not a lot of narrative or, or uh, description. And I would have to go through in my revision to sort of pare away the dialogue and, and build in some narrative so that there was actually something going on, something visual uh, in the writing. Uh, but I think one of the, the advantages of coming from a theater background is that a lot of my novels are, are fun to read aloud. And, and I've been told this by, by a lot of teachers that they often take my mystery novels and use it as a, a read aloud for their class to, to hook those uh, reluctant readers. Because when they hear the story being read aloud, um, they start getting into the story. And, and obviously there's humor in the dialogue and humor in the characters. And uh, as soon as a lot of kids hear that first chapter read aloud, uh, they want more of it. And, and I think that's a lot to do with uh, my background in theater and, and knowing to play with characters and dialogue. Whereas I think if I went the other way, sort of writing fiction and then tackling uh, theater, I think um, my writing might be a little more wooden if I was writing plays from a, a novelist's perspective. Because simply because with a novel, uh, you're able to get inside the head of the character more and you don't have to really... Ex- uh, sort of play with the interaction with other characters. You can have everything play out in the mind of, of your narrator, of your main character. Uh, and, and so you don't really have to worry about that interplay or the subtext of, of what's going on in a scene. Yeah, yeah that's totally understandable. I know um, I had a high school teacher who was like, you know, you should write more. And I noticed that uh, the story that he liked of mine because I'm not a big fan of description, even when I'm reading stuff. Like, I don't need three pages of description. If it's a rolling hill, I got it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I did a lot of dialogue in my story. And then um, when I got to college and I had to take, like, a story class when I was in uh, film school, like, they were, you know, obviously we want to focus on um, dialogue, but I use that opportunity to challenge myself to use more description because I was using so much dialogue. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, I completely understand like um, coming at it from the dialogue perspective to the other way. Cause then you sort of get a feel for the characters by what they're saying. It's kind of like in film where we're, we're always like shouting, like you can show it, stop saying it. Like exposition yeah. is horrible. Stop that. <laughs> like, and do you have a preference over uh, a dialogue versus uh, the narrative? Um, yeah, I have to say, uh, I, I guess I am drawn more to dialogue. I would have to say, I, there's a couple. I'm a big fan of uh, Cory Doctorow, um, 
and he does a couple of YA books like Little Brother and Homeland along with some other books. But he uh, he has a voice that I can sort of identify with. And and it's that's kind of my thing is uh, when I was in school and I thought, oh, I really enjoyed writing this short story. And then my cousin was in the same grade as me. And uh, my teacher also told her, like, yeah, you did a great job. And I read her story and I was like, OK, like she totally wrote this with like a thesaurus right next to her. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm a big and and he loved it and he loved her work. And I was like, do I have to do that? Because I'm sort of the kind of person who enjoys reading and also like reading the way like I would write or I write the way that I would talk. And so I think I enjoy people who sort of write that way where it's where there I don't need like to I don't need to read on my Kindle and push like the word every five minutes to figure out what it is. <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of uh, I think it's Charles Strauss novels where I, I really like his science fiction as well. But a lot of the stuff goes over my head and I'm like, wow, either I'm going to absorb this or I'm just going to skip over it. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm big on story and character, and and I'll I'll admit I'm not big on uh, description either. I mean, with the uh, steampunk fantasy series that I've been writing on, I know that a lot of steampunk it, it, they want to build the world and they want to build sort of the um uh the the tech of the the steampunk world. And when I was writing it, I, I was more interested in in the characters and the interactions and and some of the alternate history and and when i when i sort of delved into the description of the the steampunk world i just tried to find the shortest way to to get through it so that i could give people a taste of the world without having to spend pages and pages of exposition and or description and and so with my steampunk fantasy series i i i call it steampunk adjacent or steampunk light so if anyone wants to break mm-hmm. into that genre and and read it it's it's a it's a good primer so that that you sort of go oh I know what this world is about before you get inundated with um, uh, the the sort of scads of description of of what are really cool worlds but if you're a person who's more into character and story sometimes it, it can get a little daunting to try to sift through all the the details. Well, and it seems like as a strategy, it leaves you open instead of uh, instead of writing lots of detailed uh, description that uh, people would read as potentially, you know, throwaway lines that you have to stick to or canon that you have to stick to in the future. Um, you've just let the uh, the characters uh, carry the story and, and motivate the story so that you can, you can do more of that description or take it in a different direction later. You didn't nail yourself down either. Yeah, and, and I remember I, I was talking to uh, a, a writer who... who had decided to write a, a trilogy, uh, a young adult trilogy, a fantasy trilogy, uh, but he was doing it one book at a time, and 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 it was his first attempt at a trilogy, and he had finished the first book, it was published, and then when he was working on the second book, he had finished the draft and sent it to his editor, and the editor sent it back to him and, and said, no, you, you can't do what you've done in the second book because you've already established the rules in the first book, and now you're breaking the rules in the second book. You have to be consistent with the trilogy. And I, I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, like, mm. uh, yeah. I, I, I have a strong uh, level of respect for the people who write uh, a trilogy or a continuing series, and they have to keep, uh, keep everything in the world alive at all times because you know that there's going to be a reader who's going to call you as soon as you deviate from uh, right. uh, something that you've right. established in an earlier book. Yeah, that's uh, very true. I was I just finished reading um, uh, a second book um, by uh, Strauss in uh, the first book. The two are like unrelated but they happen in the same universe was basically what i put on goodreads when i reviewed it because <laughs> i was like they're really i can't seem to think i mean i read that like probably eight months ago but there isn't a single character that i'm familiar with um that is in both books like it's just the same universe it has nothing to do with the first book <laughs> and i was like so what's kind of interesting about that is you could probably just pick up and read this book if you wanted. Like you said, like the rules are kind of established in the first book, but you'll pretty much get it 
So you don't need to read the first book. <laughs> okay, yeah. I was like, this that's kind of fascinating when it comes to like a book in series. Like, I, is he using like series to market it? Like, because it really, it's just in the same universe. <laughs> like a comic yeah. book, right? Like, it's just, this is the universe. Yeah, it's the universe and, and that's where we're going to play. Although I, I remember um, uh, there was a, a, a young adult author, uh, Kenneth Opal, who came came through Edmonton a few years back. And he has a huge following from uh, – uh, he did a, a, a series with uh, bats as uh, the, the protagonists. Uh, there's, there's Firewing and Silverwing and Darkwing. And I remember he was delivering his talk and, and – I mean, the fans, the fans of his books were uh, really, uh, uh, really on point. And, and they weren't just kids. There were, there were adult readers there, too, as well. And I remember there was a question that came from the audience. And, and it's like, like as, as a writer, when you go out and do presentations, you always have your, your nightmare scenario. And as watching the nightmare <laughs> scenario unfold <laughs> in his presentation where somebody so raised his hand and said, I have a question about your novel. On page 283, you used the, uh, you used the descriptor orange to describe the sunset. Yet you, uh, <laughs> you had indicated in an interview you gave in 1997 that uh, because bats were colorblind, you decided not to use color in the description of your novels. I was like, oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. It's like one straight <laughs> reference to a color. And, and a reader has not only picked up on it, but he's, he's using the opportunity to browbeat the author into saying, I made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I realized that most of my readers can, in fact, perceive color, and I decided to make it more interesting for them. <laughs> yeah, I did it to screw with you. <laughs> right. right. Uh, so, uh, fail. <laughs> yeah, but your uh, your take on focusing on character, like uh, that that is definitely seems to be the way to go because I mean, then you create like an empathy between the reader and the characters in the book, um, more than a narrative. But I think that's what we're seeing like in a lot of media now too. I've seen a couple of interviews with actors and directors talking about like why TV has become such a big thing and why like everybody wants to do an HBO show or they want to do the next breaking bad because these are like, character dramas about like an individual going through something it's not mm -hmm. you know it's not about like uh some crazy event it's about the characters and uh so yeah i think that's uh that seems to be really working these days <laughs> well, and you, well you think about it when people are talking about their favorite series or 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 a novel they're often referring to the character. Like when I talk to kids, they'll say, yeah, I'm looking for the next Harry Potter novel. And, and sometimes they won't even remember the title of the book that they're talking about, but they'll always remember the, the protagonist, right? They'll always refer to that as the Harry Potter series. That's true. Yeah. And then like, even you think on, on an adult level, like we're all, I mean, I mean, you know, uh, uh, the Mad Men uh, series finale just aired a, a few nights ago and, you know, everyone's talking about, uh, you know, Don Draper's journey. They're not talking about, you know, uh, any specific plot points, but they're talking about, you know, I think, I think most of the, 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 the tweets I've seen on, on Twitter have to do with that, that uh, Coke ending. I'm not going to try to spoil it. I guess, do, do we, <laughs> is this the point where you go spoiler alert? <laughs> yes. Uh, we'll, so the we'll spoiler ring the, is, ring is the gong about the, the, uh, the, the, the sort of last image of Don Draper at, at that sort of hippie commune and, and he's sort of uh, connecting with himself and, and then he, he has this sort of knowing smile that spreads across his face and the next thing we do is we cut to the, uh, the, the 70s Coke commercial where um, there's sort of a United Nations of, of uh, people on a hill singing, I'd like to buy the world of Coke. And, and, you, and you go, was, was the eight years of Mad Men devoted towards Don Draper coming up with the idea for that iconic Coke commercial? Is that, is that, you know, is that what we've invested eight years of, of, of Mad Men watching uh, to see? <laughs> no, I just want a Coke. No, you just want a Coke. <laughs> right.
Yeah, old Coke or new Coke? Oh, Coke Classic, baby. Coke Classic, which I, I think remember, is Pepsi, isn't it? <laughs> I remember as a kid when that happened, um, old Coke and new Coke, and I remember, uh, I remember we tried the new Coke, my family, and uh, we didn't like it. So then, like, our entire fridge in the basement was filled with all the old Coke that we could find. (laughs) (laughs) You're stockpiling for the apocalypse. (laughs) Yeah, my parents, like, stockpiled. And then, um, of course, then they came out with the classic Coke and everyone was like, oh, it's just a marketing gimmick, those jerks. And one day in my youth, I was like, wait a second. I looked at both cans and they were, like, identical in their ingredients, right? Because in ingredients, you don't have to list how much of something is in there. (laughs) But, yeah. So I was like, wait, new Coke and Coke Classic are the same. <laughs> it's a sort of green moment. Yes. <laughs> right. I was so like, I, I it's made Coke. of old Coke. I needed my, I needed to get on my detective phone and call Detective Marty Chan. <laughs> we must expose this. Crack the case. That's right. <laughs> I used to read, speaking of Detective Chan, I used to read, um, when I was younger, I really loved the Encyclopedia Brown books. <laughs> I remember those. Yeah. Didn't I'm they great. used to have, uh, in the, when, when the newspapers had the Sunday or the, was it the Sunday comics? Or, yeah, I think it was the Sunday comics. So you get the, the color supplement and, and I think Encyclopedia Brown, there was a sort of a little, little strip of Encyclopedia Brown in there as well where, uh, I don't. Oh, I can't remember if it was a strip or if it was a, a puzzle you had to solve, and it was brought to you by Encyclopedia Brown. Wow, I don't remember that. Crazy. I could be making it up. I am a professional liar. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, let's see. Uh, back to uh, back to the uh, prejudice thing uh, we were discussing. Um, I, I thought it was really neat when I read, uh, aside from kind of showing like the different kind of uh, the prejudice within culture, um, I, I read that uh, in the uh, mystery of the mad science teacher, that sort of illness is the uh, prejudice. Why can't I say that word? To do no focal exercises. Um, but you cite your uh, mother-in-law's and father's uh, diabetes as the inspiration and how people uh, treat those with illness differently. Um, can you expand on that idea, like as a source? Uh, oh, yeah. With with illnesses, especially, uh, um, I, I think when, when you learn that somebody has some kind of illness, th- th- there's sort of a stereotyping that you start to treat them almost as if they, they are the disease rather than the person. So, mm, yeah. you know, there, there's oftentimes, like if you learn if somebody has, let's say, cancer or, or something that, that is life-threatening, you know, everyone starts talking in hushed tones as if, you know, you're, you're at death's doorstep. And, and, and so there, there's just sort of this, um, a change in terms of the way people react to you. And, and oftentimes that change is the disease where, where you start thinking about the disease and, and, and the stereotypes associated with the disease. So in the case of, uh, of um, uh, uh, my mother-in-law uh, uh, and my dad having diabetes, I kept thinking, you know, how do people respond to them when they find out that they do have uh, diabetes? And, and it's one of those things where people start getting a little more careful about, you know, what they're talking about uh, and, and how they, they respond to the other person. And, and I sort of wanted to take that into the, the notion of the novel uh, or in the series, because in the series, in each book, I was trying to deal with a different reason why uh, somebody was going to be discriminated against. In the first book, The Mystery of the Frozen Brains, uh, it was race-based. Uh, 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 the, the Chinese kid who was getting teased for, for looking different. In the second book, The Mystery of the Graffiti Ghoul, I wanted it to be geographic location. Uh, uh, Remy, uh, the, the friend to, to Marty character in the novel, uh, lived in the trailer park and, and kids had a certain assumption about the, the people who lived in trailer parks and, uh, and so that made him a victim of discrimination. And then for the Mystery of the Mad science teacher, I wanted it to be you know a, a girl who um, 
had uh, diabetes and and was just sick and tired of the kids treating her differently and so so she sort of rebelled and and wanted to be known for something other than the kid who was sick and that's why she became sort of more of a, a rebel at school and and uh, uh, and that gave her for her uh, gave her an identity that was something beyond what what the kids were imposing on her when they found out that that she was sick interesting yeah i I actually was diagnosed like a year ago now with diabetes and uh it's it's so interesting because um even as someone who's taken classes and had multiple appointments with a nurse and a doctor to discuss like what's happening and how we're going to fix things or stop things like it's still even though it's so common it's still like a uh, a disease with sort of this stigma about it where it's like, um, you know, if you don't take care of it, these awful things will happen. You'll lose your foot. You'll die. Like all these things. Yeah. But, but even after going through all the education, I don't know how those things happen. They just say, you know, you have to control like your intake. That's it. <laughs> like, like, so if I have this piece of cake, am I going to lose my foot tomorrow? You can't answer that question. Like, so because there is that mystery about it, like it, I I get the same looks like when when people found out, they're like, oh, and then there's like these like, oh, we're having a birthday party for someone. They're like, oh, can, can you have cake? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And we, should have, we, should, we should create a, a scale uh, for diabetics. So, so it's the cake foot scale. So it's like this much cake equals <laughs> this much of your foot that you will lose. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I'm tall and I'm lanky, but I'm not good at basketball. So I could stand to lose a little bit of my feet. Go ahead yeah. and give me the cake. <laughs> now, does that come with icing or because <laughs> that will accelerate the foot loss? Exactly. But yeah, I, um, cause I've been, relatively healthy for an American that is um, throughout my life. So then to like, it's like an all an, a new experience to experience the exact thing that you're discussing in that book where people are just like, Oh, diabetes. <laughs> like, just like, yeah, that's what I have. It's okay. I'm not going to give it to you. <laughs> already have it. Um, right. Don't right. know. So, yeah, that's really why I wanted the Coke. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, if you, I think it's because of the new Coke that you drank. Maybe that, that was what really caused it all. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, originally, I think the, the original name was Diabetic Coke. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, if, uh, I'm sure if things had happened differently, perhaps in another a parallel universe, there is the real detective Marty Chan who never got caught in the store and continued on. And he's uncovered the fact that like Coke owns the pharmaceutical company that makes my diabetic medication. Whoa, oh, now there's a story. <laughs> <laughs> Drink this new Coke. It's good for you. Uh Oh, it's not good for you. You better take these pills. <laughs> I've just I've just created like the perfect like uh financial scheme for Coca-Cola if they're listening they're like hey, yeah I let's know. buy a pharmaceutical if, company. If Coke is listening they're probably taking notes right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's called vertical integration, Chris. <laughs> Although, you know, it's I think it's harder to sing I'd like to buy the world some insulin. That's true. True. <laughs> it needs a sexier name, insulin. <laughs> I like it. New insulin. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> or uh, classic insulin. <laughs> classic insulin. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, we sort of touched on um, your, because you've been writing children's book, but then the, um, the Eric series is... Uh, is sort of youth adult, isn't it? The Eric Weiss? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, that one's uh, uh, for uh, slightly older readers and, and fans of steampunk fantasy. And, and at, at a certain level, though, it still sort of touches on the same 
themes that, that I've touched on with the, the Marty Chan mystery series with Mom, Dad, I'm Living with a White Girl or even uh, 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 my Barnabas Bigfoot series where uh, I am looking at uh, the Eric Weiss Chronicles as, a, uh, as an allegory for the treatment of immigrants coming to North America in the 1890s. And uh, uh, in my case with uh, the Eric Weiss Chronicles, uh, I've proposed that uh, in 1890s New York, there are portals that open up to other worlds and creatures or beings from other worlds are, are immigrating to New York and they're being treated in, in sort of similar ways that uh, a lot of uh, Asian immigrants were treated when they were coming to uh, North America hmm. in that same period. And, and in fact, uh, I, I refer to in the book um, a place uh, where some of the uh, what they call dimensionals, the, the the beings from other worlds, where they're where they're incarcerated. Uh, there's a place called Devil's Island, uh, which was inspired by uh, Angel Island, and that was a facility where um, Asian immigrants were kept, uh, just off of uh, 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 on an island just outside of uh, San Francisco. And I remember when I was doing the research for this. Um, one of the things that was really heartbreaking is is I, I came across a book where uh, somebody had uh, published uh, the poems or the writings of some of the uh, Chinese immigrants uh, living uh, or, or sort of kept on Angel Island. And they were talking about basically being in purgatory and wondering when when they would finally be released. And, and I thought, just imagine the months and months that... Uh, uh, these immigrants were kept in this island and, and, and not able to sort of set foot in, in North America. And I thought that would have been a, a terrible experience. And, and uh, uh, with the Eric Weiss Chronicles, I wanted to sort of, in a subversive way, get across that, that treatment of, of immigrants, uh, but to put it in a, in a state that maybe kids would think was uh, 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 cool to follow. So, so that's why I decided that the immigrants coming to New York were not from other countries, but actually from other worlds. Yes. That, uh, I've, I've read, uh, both of them so far. Um, and I really enjoyed them. Well, um, excellent. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, the first book, um, my wife came home with it cause you did a presentation, not for students, but for teachers, I believe at her school and she came home with the book and she's like, I have a gift for you. And then she's like, look, and it even has Marty's signature. So, oh, my, my 10 year old signature. In there. <laughs> <laughs> the, the horrible penmanship. So, so then like when I found out the second book was out and uh, ran out to Aubrey's to go get it, uh, I was like, Oh, now I have to get this one signed. <laughs> it's got to complete any time. I'm happy to sign any time. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, yeah, I, I, um, it's funny cause I was just like absorbing it because I was like, Oh, steampunk is like, uh, like you said, uh, people, when they talk about steampunk, they get into like the world building and, um, for people outside that maybe don't go to steampunk balls and uh, dress up at cons as steampunk. Um, we're just like, oh, so it's like science fiction Victorian. Like that's basically like the way to describe it. People wearing cool goggles. Got it. Um, so like you said, yours is like steampunk light. And so I really enjoyed the universe. And then um, uh, as I was reading like uh, the stuff about uh, the themes in your books, I was like, Oh, right. Because I, I was totally into the, the science fiction of like, ooh, dimensionals. And then like I, I started analyzing it like an adult. I was like, oh, yeah, I see what we're doing here. Okay. <laughs> well, so, cool. Uh, I'm thrilled that you picked up on that theme. And, and, and I, I, I have to be honest with you, it was one of the most fun that I had uh, researching and, and writing the novel because – uh, because it does play with an alternate timeline. So it is set in 1890s New York, but I wanted to sort of build it on what I knew about the real 1890s New York. And, and 
that's why I pull in uh, historic figures into the storyline. Uh, Eric Weiss is the given name of uh, Harry Houdini, the, the famous magician and escape artist. Uh, he teams up with Nikola Tesla, who's the father of modern electricity. Uh, there's even some incidental characters that, that show up uh, and through like Nellie Bly, the investigative reporter uh, who appears in, in uh, uh, the second novel. Uh, and uh, Edison, Thomas Edison also shows up in the, in the second novel. So it, it, for me, it was fun to try to piece together these historic figures and try to weave them into a story and come up with my version of how they connect to this world. And uh, for me, it was, uh, first of all, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun because it was just sort of this challenge of going, okay, I, I don't know. Do you guys remember the, the Marvel series, uh, uh, the What If series? No. There's like an old series back in, I think it started in the late 70s, early 80s, where Marvel decided, uh, uh, we're going to do a what if series. It's like, uh, what if Captain America hadn't been frozen for 50 years? So Hmm. they they just sort of proposed different scenarios for their heroes and and decide to see like what would happen to the world if if, uh, uh, what we know to be true in the Marvel universe was, was something different. And, and so I, I really enjoyed that series because it sort of proposed like different origins or, or different connections with people. And, and, and I sort of had that in the back of my brain was it, when I was writing the Eric Weiss Chronicles. It was like, well, what if, you know, uh, Thomas Edison had won the War of the Currents against Nikola Tesla and uh, AC technology uh, wasn't developed? What would happen to Nikola Tesla? And in, in sort of my world, I decided that he would be disgraced and uh, wind up working for the pseudo-police force in uh, the Eric Weiss Chronicles where his job was to create uh, weaponry to, to battle the, the dimensionals coming from other worlds. Mm. And, and so it was just sort of fun to sort of play around with that sense of, yes, this is a real person from history, but now I'm going to co-op them and, and work them into uh, the world that I've created. Are, uh, are he and Edison mortal enemies? Uh, in the series? Yeah. I'm yeah, going to have they, to read it now. Yeah, they are, they are enemies in the series, as you'll see in the second book. Uh, uh, and in the third book, that, that rivalry will, will uh, uh, play itself out. Excellent. Yes. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was one of my favorite parts of the second book is uh, when Edison was introduced. Because um, it, I've just been uh, in the past like eight or nine years like learning more about Tesla and like uh, I have a book about him and watching like documentaries and stuff. And then like, I'm just like, wow. Cause like in grade school, we just learned like about all these great things that Edison does. But then yeah. like Edison he- was awesome until he electrocuted dogs. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right. right. And then basically like once you hear the real story, you're like, wow. It's like Edison like basically set the tone for like our modern corporate structure where it's like, oh, you have a business that's like ours. Well, we're going to buy you out and shut yeah. you down. <laughs> so I was I was eager. Our thumb. Yes. So I was very excited to see him enter the second book and he was not exactly a great guy. <laughs> and I was like, yay, a real take on him, even though it's an alternate history. <laughs> So uh, was there something that attracted you to Houdini to begin with or you just jumped into this world? Uh, Well, uh, if you think about this, uh, only kid in a family, not a lot of friends, uh, kid, teenager gravitates to stage magic. So so, uh, (laughs) when I was like 12 or or I think it was, yeah, 12 or 13, I I, I started to uh, take out books on stage magic and and fancied myself uh, a magician, but I was a terrible magician. So I I would learn card tricks uh, and uh, I I couldn't try the card tricks out on anybody because both my parents were working. So I would just do the card tricks uh, alone in my bedroom and be like, oh, pick a card, any card. Oh, yes, you pick the Ace of Spades. I don't know that it's the Ace of Spades, but I will find your card. Uh, so so I, early on I had an, an interest in magic. Um, and and so early on I, I'd known about Houdini and, and uh, I was a big fan of, of what he did. Uh, and uh, when, when was it? I think... I think when I was working on uh, uh, another television series called uh, Mentors, uh, it was a, a series that was shot out of Edmonton, and the premise was uh, two kids had a time machine, and they used their time machine not to go back in time, 
but to bring historic figures to the present uh, so that the historic figures could teach the kids something about uh, about you know who they were or what they did and uh, 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 as I was working on the series uh, I, I had to come up with uh, somebody to bring forward in time and and I went well the the only one that I thought would be cool to bring forward would be uh, Harry Houdini and so so I was able to sort of play around with that character, uh, did a little more research on him and found out uh, quite a bit about, about the showman as well as the magician. And uh, that sort of stuck around in my brain and, and I wanted to, to sort of take the research I did and try to put it into something else. And, and when the opportunity came up to work on the Eric Weiss Chronicles, I, I, I thought I've got to do something about Houdini. And it sort of... Uh, it was an odd way that the series came about uh, because uh, the the publisher Fitzhenry and Whiteside, uh, uh, the the children's book publisher uh, working there at the time, uh, uh, Christy Harkin, uh, she knew of my uh, Marty Chan mystery novels and she was a fan of them and and she wanted me to pitch uh, an idea for uh, Fitzhenry and Whiteside and and it was like the first time that. I was invited to pitch for fiction. I, I mean, I've done pitching for television and for theater, but I'd always had this sort of assumption that when you're working in fiction, you just write the manuscript, you send it to the publisher, and they'll, they'll either say yes or no. Uh, and so this is the first time that, that somebody sort of reached out to me and said, hey, uh, we like your writing and we want you to write something for us. Uh, give us some ideas. And I remember I put together, I think I put it together 10 ideas uh, five were picture books because Fitzhenry and Whiteside also uh, published picture books. And five were young adult novels because um, the Marty Chan mystery series were already occupying sort of the middle grade readers and I didn't want to compete with uh, the publisher I had. Uh, and so I pitched five uh, picture books uh, ideas and five young adult novel ideas. And the one that I really connected with was also the one that the Christie liked and and that was the Eric Weiss Chronicles and and that sort of uh opened the door to me writing a book in the series and and then as I was developing the outline for her she said so are you thinking about this as a series and of course if a publisher asks you a question like that the answer is always yes yes I was thinking <laughs> of a series <laughs> yeah the um uh you said you were doing a lot of research uh not too long ago i finally uh got to watch the uh i think it was the unfortunately the uh history channel uh miniseries on harry houdini starring adrian Adrian brody yeah that it was pretty bad it was awful yeah and then um uh, my in-laws had watched it and uh, they said, yeah, it was okay. And then when we watched it, I was like, that was kind of a mess. And uh, so they were like, well, you know, there are stories. And I was like, no, because while we were watching it, me and my wife, I was like Googling it like mad. And there was like a Harry Houdini fan site. And they were like basically <laughs> saying this like, isn't all even the- close. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was really interesting, like how they were debunking like each uh, each episode of the miniseries. Yeah, and I was well, and like, "That's the thing that's interesting about Houdini is 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 his his history or his biography. I mean, he he, he reinvented himself uh, as a showman. Like he was probably as good a showman as he was uh, a magician. Uh, so he knew how to sort of." Uh, I, I guess today's equivalent would be like, you know, you establish a brand. So if you're, you're a celebrity, you're, you're trying to push out a certain persona. If you're a, a comedy star or if you're an action adventure star. So, so he recognized that he had to push himself as this sort of man of magic and uh, man of uh, uh, adventure. So, so, so oftentimes he would reinvent or scrub his past. And I remember, uh, I remember he would talk about um, uh, sort of how he sort of came about uh, uh, his skills as as an escape artist, and and uh, when you sort of go through what he talks about, you realize, oh, he just made that up just so that it would make him look sort of more heroic, or 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 it would make his origin story far sexier than than the actual truth. <laughs> Which I guess in some ways that's what we all do, right? Because like if, 
if you think about it, we, we sort of take our own biography. I mean, that's the, for me, I don't know if it's with you guys, but you know, when somebody asks you to write your bi- biography, it's like the, the, the hardest thing to write because you're talking about yourself. And then invariably, if you're, if you're a, a promoter, you just sort of hype up the things that, that, uh, <laughs> uh, you think you're great at and, and you downplay everything else. And the next thing you know, you're, you're talking about being in the first helicopter like Brian Williams. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. It's very difficult. Yeah, I often handle it with humor and just make stuff up because I don't want to honk my own horn, as it were. But then you're right. Like, you can totally reinvent yourself. You know, that's <laughs> that's why those people get the job with the inflated resumes because <laughs> they, like, said they know how to do those things and then they'll learn them later. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, if you're uh if you're still if you're still into the magic theme I was going to suggest um I I saw it on Netflix but I don't think it's there anymore but it's a documentary from 2010 I think but it was still very good uh called Make Believe um and it follows uh four five kids as they try to uh, perform for some huge magic show, which will get you a scholarship and they'll help grow your career if you do really well. Oh yeah, I heard about that series. There was a, I think, uh, 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 I'm I'm doing a, a, a book party coming up on June 4th, and and I've booked a, a a magician from Edmonton, Sheldon Cassavant, to perform there. And I remember he was telling me about uh, about this, and and I think uh, is there is there a woman in that? In that documentary, yes, yep. a young woman, yep. yeah, she she eventually, I think she eventually goes on to be, uh, uh, I don't think it's on anymore, or maybe it, it's on hiatus. But the Chris Angel show on, ah. I think it was on A and E. Chris Angel was mentoring this this uh, sort of ingenue, this this uh, uh, young female magician who is sort of coming up the ranks. And apparently the, the ingenue that Chris Angel is working with was one of the, the, the uh, uh, magicians featured in that documentary. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of interesting because you sort of track through the, the – I mean, it, uh, there is a lot of work. I think sometimes I think there's more work that goes into being a stage magician than there is that goes into a writer. Cause like, and there, there are sort of parallels between the two, like with uh, both writers and stage magicians. It, it's all about sort of revising and honing your craft. And, and, um, the, the end result is what the reader or the audience sees and not necessarily, uh, you don't necessarily want them to see the work that you've put into it. Uh, and, and, you know, I've been trying to learn some, some, a little more complicated magic, uh, uh, just as a result of, of the research that I did for the, the Houtini novel. And I'm like, oh man, this is a full-time job because I have to like rehearse and, and try to figure out how to sort of manipulate cards or, or uh, uh, do these things with a straight jacket. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I always have, have to remember that it's not about all the work that I put in. It's about what the audience actually sees me doing. Uh, I don't want them to see, you know, the stuff that, that I spent, you know, three weeks rehearsing because that's the stuff that uh, gives away the secret to the trick. I want them to see the stuff that, that they think is going to make the effect magical. Uh, and I think the same thing happens with writing that you don't want to show your third and fourth and fifth draft. You just want them to see your final draft. And, and hopefully that sort of creates a magical effect that transports them into another world where uh, they get engaged with characters so much that, that, you know, they wonder if they're going to live or die and, and they're sort of sitting on the edge of their seat wondering what's going to happen next in the story. Good. Yeah. The, uh, I totally get what you're saying. Cause, um, this past summer was my first summer, uh, where we actually had a chance to go out and enjoy aside from the awesome fringe festival that's here in town, there's also the uh, buskers, right? Um, and some of those guys do, or ladies do magic tricks. And I was just like, in awe of them because you know you're not in control of the audience and that you know here's like churchill square and now the audience has sat around you in a circle there's no behind your back or beneath your sleeve kind of trick happening right yeah exactly like they have to be spot on to be able to get the audience like 
And you know, and you know, the worst audience that you can do magic for are kids, because you know what? Kids have a lot of time, and thanks to the internet, they have seen pretty well almost every YouTube video on magic tricks that are out there. <laughs> so you pull out something and go, "Oh, I know that." Okay, good, but don't don't tell anyone. No, no, no. I know how you do that. <laughs> All right, shut up, kid. Just just let me do this. Right. <laughs> um. So back to uh, the second book here, um, I was I was just uh, my wife and I when we both read it, we were just both like, "Whoa!" Because uh, as I have in my notes, uh, apparently I wrote very long notes about. Uh, I was just I wrote my notes that I grew up watching GI Joe cartoons where laser blasters filled the screen, but no one actually dies. <laughs> oh yeah, and so my wife and I were both sort of you know. Not really spoilers, but uh, we were both sort of taken aback uh, in Infinity Coil when there's a little bit of loss of life here and there. Um, did I mean even the Harry Potter series? You don't see a lot of people like leaving the book by death. Like, uh, did your publishers or editors or anyone caution you on this realism? Or uh, no, because because uh, we were aiming this as a young adult novel, so a slightly older audience than let's say my Marty Chan mystery series. Gotcha. And uh, uh, it, it, uh, readers, uh, uh, young adult readers, are, are sort of they get to see um, a little more violence uh, than, let's say, uh, what I would have been accustomed to when I was a kid. And and and, and the example I give is something like uh, Hunger Games, sure. where mm-hmm. you know have you have kid on kid violence, where where kids are actually killing their competitors, and and. You know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that that my series doesn't sort of go to that level, um, but certainly it is something that I think uh, for young adult readers, it's something that is a world that um, they're familiar with, and it's a world that that uh, 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 certainly it lends um, the the deaths that I have in the series sort of lend uh, to the danger of that world, which I, I, I for me I felt like I needed to have that in order to raise the stakes in, in the story. Uh, cause I felt like if, uh, the kids or if the, uh, the characters were running around and, and, uh, there was no consequence or loss of life, um, uh, it would be harder. I think it would be harder for, for a teen audience to, to buy into that world. Uh, cause they've seen so much, uh, of, um, of, of a different kind of world uh, or, um, I guess that's, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, as you stated earlier, like audiences are exposed to so much these days that they, you know, they quickly can spot, you know, okay, like they're very cynical. So you have to make sure that you, you get some realism in there and you get it so that they're not expecting things. Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those things where, um, uh, it, it comes back to just making sure that those, those, the readers are hooked in the story and and certainly from what i found in terms of of the responses i've gotten to uh the first novel uh uh it it's hooked uh it, i've been curious and and uh, pleasantly surprised to see that it's hooked those boys who are sort of uh, i don't know if you've, you sort of see this in in schools but you know there are great strong readers in elementary school, but then when the the kids make the transition into grade seven, eight, and nine, boys generally drop off as readers. Uh, and what I found with the the first book, Demon Gate, uh, it was hooking those those teenage boys who were going, I I like the adventure or I like the action in this. It's really cool. It's hooking me. And I go, okay, great. That that was sort of, I, I mean. In my in my mind, I, I had the notion of trying to grab the attention of a teenage boy uh, in grade seven, grade eight, uh, with the series, and, and I was really happy to see that that uh, my mission, uh, at least in the early stages, uh, is being accomplished. Nice. Yeah, I I've often read uh, like Amazon. Uh, to authors is as like iTunes and YouTube are to musicians like great exposure but there's little chance for profit and so sometimes authors speak out about these uh, new distribution methods like uh, what thoughts do you have on the new publishing world oh it's uh, (laughs) it's a big question that's a loaded one Uh, you know at the end of the day um 
what you're looking at, regardless of the distribution model, it's still a sales-driven um, endeavor. If, if you're going to self-publish or if you've got a traditional publisher, you still have to go out there and promote the book. And and if you're if you're selling it through Amazon, if you're or if you're going through any of the other uh, 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 sort of distribution models out there, whether it's like a bookstore or uh, if you're going through with an e-reader service or in the case of, of what I do, I go out in schools and if kids are interested, I'm just selling the books out of the trunk of my car. Um, ultimately, it's the author's um, responsibility to promote the book. I, I know some authors don't want to hear that and, and certainly it's, it's not a job that I'm, I'm thrilled about doing but I also recognize that uh, if you are, let's say if you go the route of a traditional publisher and you think, oh, I've got a publisher who's decided to accept my manuscript. They're going to take the, the risk, the financial risk of putting the book together and then they're going to put the book out on into bookstores and put it on the shelves and, and get me reviews and get me tons of book signings and, and, and the sales will come. Uh, I was under that impression when, with my first book. And then I stopped myself and I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, this publisher, and it's a small publishing house, they're putting out like 15 other titles at the same time that they're putting out my book. And they only have, you know, a, a one person to do the, the publicity and marketing of the book. And I thought, if that one person has to deal with 15 titles uh, twice a year, because uh, there's a, a, a spring release and a fall release, I'm thinking, how much attention is that marketing person actually going to devote to my novel when they've got 14 other titles that they have to worry about? And then if they're trying to send things out to book editors uh, of newspapers to get reviews, you know, that's 14 titles from one publisher. And you think about the number of publishers out there that are sending books to get reviewed. There's not going to be a lot of stuff that's going to make its way through to get any kind of publicity unless... I, as the author, start taking control of my own destiny and going out and trying to land those interviews uh, on uh, in newspapers or on television or on radio and get the name out there. And, and, and you know, at first I, I had probably the same reaction that most writers have. It's like, oh, no, do I have to be like a used car salesperson when I go out and shop and flog my book? And I'm, I'm sure you guys have come across this you know, on, on a social media world where you've got that one author who has a Facebook profile or a Twitter account and every status update or every tweet has something to do with how great their book is or how well it's been doing on Amazon. And you just go, Oh, I don't want to see another tweet from this person. Uh, and, and so I kind of thought, you know, if you're going to go into writing as a profession, you do have to recognize there's a sales aspect to it, but it doesn't mean you have to go to that point where you're bombarding or overwhelming people with how awesome your book is. You just have to find a way to connect with people so that you're not selling the book necessarily, but you're selling the idea of how cool the experience is of reading the book. And, and for me, I kind of think the only thing that I can really sort of put out there is my personality. And on social media, I, my personality is, is, I mean, if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, you know, I have a, a little bit of a self-deprecating sense of humor. Sometimes I'm political and sometimes uh, I, I, I'm just weird. And, uh, <laughs> and that's sort of my way of sort of putting myself out there. And then on the side, I'll mention that I've got a book launch coming up or I've got a new book. And people will go, oh, you know what? I like that Marty Chan. Let me check out what his books are. And and for me, that's my sort of comfort zone in terms of how I promote myself. And uh, I do that on social media and then uh, in person when I go out and do book talks uh, at schools or, or at libraries or when I do an adult presentation. Uh, oftentimes, I'm just talking and, and I'm talking about the stories, just like I've, I've been talking to you guys tonight. I'm just telling stories about my childhood or about my past. And then at the end, if, if people like what I have to say, I mentioned that I've got my books here and, and invariably if they, if they enjoyed the talk, they'll come up and, and at least take a look at the book and, and then get it for free someplace. <laughs> yeah, that's, see, you said that uh, you were a horrible magician, but in a way... You know, it's uh, that's like what magicians do, right? Is they yes, I make all my books disappear. No, 
the sleight of hand. Like you're supposed the to sleight be sleight of hand and, and several dollars exchanged. Exactly. <laughs> Look at me talk about uh, the legislature over here. Oops. No, you just bought a book. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> Ta-da. So, uh, Often when we see interviews with authors, they uh, say they themselves do lots of reading. So what or who does Marty Chan read? Oh, uh, who am I reading recently? Uh, right now, um, where's that book? Sorry, I just it's finished. This is a really cool book. Uh, it was like the language of food of all things. Uh, and it was just talking about the, the, the history of how uh, certain foods came into our our public consciousness, and uh, one of the stories that that sort of hooked me was uh, ketchup and how that came about. And apparently, uh, it, it came from uh, one of the stories that it, it came from from uh, China, because uh, originally it was like ketchup uh, 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 or or catsup, uh, and can Cantonese sup is sauce, and ke mm. is uh, fish, so it's a fish sauce. And, uh, uh, and so there's a story about how, um, uh, that book or that, that term came to be and it. And it's sort of connected to, uh, sort of a Chinese fish, fish sauce that eventually they added, uh, uh, tomato. Oh no, sorry. Ke is tomato. Sorry. Somebody's going to call me on it. The, the same person <laughs> who called out Kenneth Opal for using orange in his novel is going to call me out <laughs> for that one. Uh, uh, ke is tomato and, uh, uh, jup is uh, sauce, so it's it's tomato sauce, and and so that's how ketchup came to be. And I, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So I picked up the book, and and uh, it's I think it's the language of food. Uh, so that was a really cool one. And on the fiction level, I, I'm always a huge fan of um, uh, uh, Arthur Slade. Uh, he's a Canadian writer, writes uh, YA stuff. Uh, the first book I ever came across of his, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, it was called Dust, and it was a thriller about uh, it was sort of like a rain man or rainmaker coming through town, and uh, uh, small children disappear whenever he shows up, and 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 it was sort of a, a great thriller that hooked me. Uh, and uh, since then, I've always followed his work, and and his most recent titles are the Hunchback Assignments, which is a steampunk uh, fantasy series, uh, 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 but it proposes that a a young Quasimodo becomes a secret agent in, in the Victorian era. And, uh, he's able to morph himself into different, uh, disguises. And, and, and so I, I quite enjoyed that series and I certainly would recommend that to anybody who likes uh, steampunk and, and wants to get into that genre. Cool. That does sound interesting. So, uh, you've moved around a little bit here and there with, with the various stages of your career. Um, Yet, uh, obviously, your tweets show that you love Edmonton. <laughs> help, help a newbie to the city like me understand uh, why you've settled here. Uh, it's, it, I, I love Edmonton uh, because geographically there's nothing here that, that would attract anybody. We're not near mountains. We're not near the ocean. I know we have a river valley, but there are a lot of cities that have river valleys. But the one thing that is a constant uh, in all the years that I've lived here uh, are the people. And uh, uh, the people are incredible in this city. They, they have this dynamic energy. Uh, there is the certain sort of, uh, I call it the can-do spirit that they have here in the city where anything is possible. And I think it's one of the reasons why in theater, the Fringe uh, Festival uh, has become so popular in Edmonton. I, I know that the Fringe Festival started in Edinburgh, uh, out in Scotland, but in North America, certainly the grandfather of the Fringe uh, is in Edmonton. And I think it speaks a lot to uh, the that, that sort of optimistic spirit of uh, people in the city in terms of uh, putting their work up there. And, and uh, I know when I started out in theater, um, uh, the people in professional theater were quite welcoming to newcomers. I, I mean, I started out, I was just this kid who came out of university. I, I did some theater sports, some improv, and I, I wanted to, to uh, write plays. And I remember I put on my own plays for a couple of years. I, I pulled friends from theater sports to, to perform in the shows. And then I think it was about three or four years in when, when, when I wrote a play and 
uh, my theater sports buddies were were not available to do the show, so I was looking for actors. And uh, my director said, well, we should approach some of the professional actors in town. And I was like, oh, no, they're professional actors. There's no way that they would come and, and do my show. And they said, uh, I remember uh, uh, my director said, well, it doesn't hurt to ask. And so I, I think we almost played rock, paper, scissors to decide uh, who had the courage to go ask uh, one of the most talented actresses in the city. Uh, her name's Marianne Cawthorn. And uh, she was appearing on all stages in Edmonton. She was on the Citadel stage, which is the, the, the main theater in Edmonton. Uh, she was working on theater network stages. And uh, everybody, when they talked about, you know, the who's who of, of Edmonton actors, they'd always bring up her name. And... And, and we're like, oh, should we ask Marianne to do the show? And and uh, I think it was my wife, actually. My wife was the one who had the courage to like pick up the phone and call Marianne because I was too chicken to do this and my director was too chicken to do it. Uh, but she called Marianne Coppathorn up and said, hey, my husband's writing a fringe play. It's, it was almost like it's, it's, it's a mother asking somebody to come play <laughs> with their kid. Uh, but... Um, she she said we, we're doing this fringe play. Uh, we we would love to have you act in it. We think you're brilliant. Would would you be interested? And and we just sort of expected Marianne to go, "Who are you?" and then hang up the phone. Uh, but instead, Marianne said, "You know what? Uh, I'm not doing anything this summer. Why don't you send me a copy of the script? If I like it, uh, I'll give you a shout." And uh, so I packaged the script. I dropped it off at a house. And a couple of days later, she gave me a call and said, yeah, I'd love to do your, your show. And I thought, well, this is amazing. You know, like uh, somebody who's a professional uh, actor in the town and, and has a great reputation is willing to say, hey, I'm going to help out this, this, this new playwright uh, by acting in their show. And so I, I, I always tell that story as a reflection of how positive and, and how warm the theater community is uh, in Edmonton, that they're always willing to open their arms and embrace like a new person to come in. Uh, and I think that spirit is one of the reasons why the Fringe Festival is such a huge movement in Edmonton. And I also think that the optimism of, uh, of the people in theater is echoed uh, in other Edmontonians. And, and you can see other... Um, other projects take off or other uh, avenues where, where people are just uh, just trying something out and putting it out there. I know there's the, the Make Something Edmonton campaign where it's encouraged people to uh, try out different projects. And, and there's a lot of uh, sort of a sort of a great spirit in the city. And uh, it has to do with the fact that that uh, it's it's people powered more than it is uh, uh, something uh, powered by uh, natural geographic attractions. That's very nice. Yeah, it's, I, um, yeah. I mean, when I came here, it was like, uh, three years ago and it was easy to fall into the, uh, American joke or stereotype of everyone in Canada is polite, but it was certainly noticeable. <laughs> the, the community aspect of Edmonton is definitely noticeable. Like everyone wants to help you out. So. It, it, Oh, it's it's good that we lived up to that particular stereotype, <laughs> <laughs> and we um, all know and we all know Bob, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, it's getting to be that time. Uh, just been really great to talk to you. Thanks uh, for giving us your time, Marty. Um, you have some wonderful stories. <laughs> well, thank um, you for having me. I, I really had a great time talking to you guys. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, so I guess we should do the traditional podcast thing. Uh, where can uh, <laughs> listeners find you online? Or do you have anything to plug? Oh, uh, uh, the, the the plug I have for anyone who's li- listening to this live, I've got a book party in Edmonton uh, coming up uh, June 4th. Uh, I'm launching the Infinity Coil at the Citadel Theater. Uh, the book is available uh, across the country, you can get it through Amazon or Chapters, uh, Infinity Coil. That's the second book in the Eric Weiss Chronicles. And if you want to sort of follow my misadventures, you can uh, connect with me on Facebook. Uh, it's just Marty Chan. Uh, or if you want to follow some of my bizarre musings on Twitter, uh, <laughs> I'm at Marty underscore Chan. Highly suggested. Good fun. Um, and my, <laughs> myself, uh, I'm sick, so you don't want to follow me. No, uh, <laughs> I'm on Twitter as sick days, S I K K D A Y S. 
Um, and you can also go to sickdays.me to find out the other sort of networks and things that I've got my fingers in. There's also Paul. Yes, uh, I am. Hi, I'm Paul. Uh, and on Twitter, I am at Paul D, P-A-U-L-D. Um, so you can uh, watch me tweet uh, silly uh, computer programmer uh, jokes and or uh, video resolution jokes, uh, as is my want, um, there. And then uh, I also have a blog at padizio.com, P-A-D-I-Z-I-O.com which I am endeavoring to post a little bit more frequently on. Yes, we have to get that Apple Watch review. Indeed. Indeed. I think um, it's I think I'm close to like 3000 words now on it. So, <laughs> it just keeps growing cuz I keep thinking of new sections to add to it. <laughs> thanks thanks to everyone who listened live tonight and thank you if you've <clears throat> downloaded this podcast. Um those of you listening live, you can always subscribe using the feed link or the iTunes link on this very page you're listening to us on, and you'll never miss an episode. Uh, speaking of which, between this show and the Film Frown podcast, we have about, I'd say, seven live episodes to edit and notate and plop on iTunes and the site. So Paul and myself are becoming a thing we hate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are taking a mid-season break to catch up. Uh, so more excuses on that would include the fact that when he's not doing the bat tootsie or being father and husband, uh, Paul is also working on a new site for our shows and possibly a third podcast. That's true. Um, yeah, I'm taking on new responsibilities with, uh, my freelance client and it's great cause I love learning new things and I'm still trying to convince a few organizations to pay me for writing stuff. So, uh, Yeah. So we're taking a small break. Hey, Paul, um, how much money have we made doing this show? Uh, <laughs> I don't remember how much we made on those T-shirts, but I can tell you that uh, it may have paid for my mute switch. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we do this show because we love it. Uh, you paid Paul us to not hear me is what I'm saying. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Paul does the production. Um and the post-production he does in his bad cave at midnight when the rest of his family's finally sleeping. I do a lot of pre-production for the shows. I can't believe how much has evolved. Um, anyway, like an example is annoying potential guests like Marty until he says, yes, I'll do the show if you stop sleeping on my front lawn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so if you think you're interested in supporting the show, let us know uh, using the contact and info we mentioned before uh or tweeting at montreal sauce all one word and maybe we'll set something up like patreon or something like that in the meantime you can support us by telling your friends or go to itunes and rate us that really helps um so i will dismount from the soapbox uh thanks again <laughs> marty thanks again uh it was a pleasure uh, and thank you listeners we will be back in july i think perhaps with live shows um until then, uh, what do they have to remember? What's the sign-off, Paul? Uh, stay saucy? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. I think that's better than mine. Obviously, your wife didn't like mine, which was, <laughs> if life gives you potatoes, make poutine. Make poutine. That's right. <laughs> good night, everyone.